We've been studying the book of Romans now for some time. I don't remember exactly when we started it, but we're <clears throat> making our way through this very important book. Uh, as we said before, Romans is quite probably the, uh, the greatest theological thesis that has ever been written down, whether that's in the Bible or anywhere else. Much of what we theologically believe is very much grounded in what Paul says here in the book of Romans. We are at chapter 8, which James Boyce describes as being the most important chapter in all of Scripture. I'm not sure I would go there, but what Boyce is saying is this, is it's more important even than the Gospels. It's more important than the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. Now, I'd say to you this, I don't really think that myself. I don't think that anything that Paul says supersedes the importance in, in, of, of the Gospels at all. That the words of Jesus stand above and beyond everything else. But I would say to you this morning... That we are a Reformed church, and one of the reasons we are a Reformed church is because of Romans chapter 8. That there are many of the tenets, many of the understandings that we have in regard to rightful theology that are very much grounded in this particular chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 has everything to do with why you and I believe what we believe when it comes to salvation and some other things. How familiar are you with it? How many times have you read it? How many times have you studied it? Just remember this, that it's not given to us apart from what Paul has already talked about. Chapter 7, we studied how, uh, how we, uh, as, as converts to Christianity, how, how our current state is this, is that we are saints. And we know that's true because of what Christ has done for us. Not because of what we've done, but because of the faith that he's even given us to believe in what he has done for us. Christ is the center of all of it. He begins with these words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of the life of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the Flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God indwells you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who in dwells you. Now, as we begin this, I want to bring to your attention the fact that verse 1, there's an alternate ending that you'll find in some of your Bibles. Here in the New American Standard, it says this, Therefore, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're going to find in some Bibles that there's an addition to that where it says this, those who do not walk according to flesh but according to the Spirit. If you're reading the King James Version Bible, that is what you find there. It might surprise you to know this, that the translations that both Martin Luther did and John Calvin did include that last part of that verse. So we sit here today saying this, asking the question, why is it that some Bibles have that ending in verse 1 and some of them don't? It's because of this. It's because we have available to us far more ancient copies of New Testament manuscripts than the, the guys who who did the translation for the King James Version, and also far more than John Calvin had or Martin Luther had. And what we have found this is this, is that in the oldest manuscripts that we have, that last part of the verse is not there. Now, you may have been raised with the idea that the King James Version Bible is the Word of God. It's the only Word of God. There are churches out there today that are teaching that and preaching that, that if you're using anything but the King James Version Bible, you're using something from Satan. My friends, that is hogwash. There's a sense, you need to understand this, that newer translations very often are better translations because we have more to work with. I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with the King James Version Bible. It's a very good English translation. But the ESV, the NASB, what I'm telling you is they've translated this verse better. Because it's one of those things that appears to be a little addition that some tran uh, uh, transcriber made to the text at some point to make it flow a little bit better or, or, or to make it sound a little bit better or, or whatever or whatever their reason happened to be. We need to understand something, and that is this, is we have scholars out there, and their intention is this, is for us to get back to the original text, not text that has been affected by any input by outside sources, like well-meaning people. So please don't have in your mindset that there is one particular translation that is the word of God and every other translation is not. 
that they all four fall short. Just keep these things in mind. And we've talked about this as how we have advantages over even believers of past years. The big advantage that we have over the people who lived in the Old Testament is we have the Word of God written down in a book for us. In its entirety, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament as well. And how we need to take advantage of that. That's a gift that God hasn't given to most of the people of the church for the history of the church. You need to understand that. We're not talking about the history of the church. When did the church start? It started in the Garden of Eden. I'm not talking about New Testament church. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ. It has been around since almost the dawn of history. We have the advantage. We have the word of God before us all the time. And there's a sense in which we have it better than some past generations have. Because we have so much more to work with than they did. To be honest with you, I wish it was there. I wish it was supposed to be there. But what I'm telling you is every evidence says it wasn't, and therefore we should not include it. Just remember this. In the last chapter, Paul was arguing of the fact that we as believers are still sinners. And we can call ourselves saints because of what Christ has done for us. But at the same time, we, we acknowledge that we continue to be sinners in a sense. Because why? Because there's evil still in us. We look at our heart. We look at our mind. We don't always do what we know God wants us to do. We don't do what he tells us to do. We understand that Paul was talking about himself, his own ongoing struggle with the sin that's still living and breathing in him. At the time he writes this letter. In chapter 7, he's all, also making the argument that the law is a good thing. You know, he's thinking that based upon what he's written already, they're going to see, be some people looking at this picture and begin to think, well, the law is bad because it's through the law that, 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 that we're condemned. It's, law has the power of condemnation. There's a sense in which it's the power of death because if you don't keep it, that's what the penalty is. But there is a real change, a substantial change, a measurable, apparent change that takes place when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about the fact that there are a lot of people, and this is pervasive thinking in this nation. If you don't see this, it's because you haven't talked to many people about these things. There's so many people out there that believe this, that the way you get to heaven is being a good person. 
That's how you do it. It's all based upon you, based upon your doing. They have this picture that when we die and if we go to heaven and if we stand in judgment before God, then he's going to put our, he's going to weigh our good in the balance against our bad. And because I'm obviously a pretty reasonably good person, I don't do real, those really bad things a lot of people, other people have done, then it's going to weigh out in my favor and I'm going to be ushered into heaven because I've made the mark. But they don't understand what the mark is. The mark is absolute perfection. It's not being apparently better than other people. I mean, what the Bible says over and over again is that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all desperately, and this is one of the things that Paul emphasized in chapter 7, that the law does many things for us. And one of those is this, that it drives us constantly and continually to the cross of Christ because that's where forgiveness for sin takes place and it's the only place it does. Does the law still have application, have application for you and I? It it's no longer has the ability to condemn us. You need to understand that. That when you became a believer, that the law can no longer condemn you. The reason being is because Christ paid the penalty for every sin you've ever committed, ever will to today, or ever will commit. He covered the whole thing. Therefore, the law has lost its ability to condemn you to death. Does that mean that the law doesn't have any application for you and me any longer? The answer to that is no, because the law still has the power to convict us. No longer to condemn us. But it still has the power to convict us. Which is what happens when we look at the law and then we look at our life. And we see our failings. And what does that conviction do? It drives you yet again to your knees before the cross of Jesus. That's why Paul can say there is now, not tomorrow, not next year, not at the second coming of Christ, but right now, there is no condemnation. But it's only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he suffered that condemnation for us already. There's a sense in which the law itself is what has set us free. Now, we don't think too much about that. We don't think about the freeing sense of the law. You understand that there's a sense in which it's through the law that we gain life? But again, it's not our doing the law, it's Christ doing the law for us. He also talks here about the law of sin. 
As we said before, the bedrock of the Christian religion is this, is Christ has paid the penalty for all of my sin. Past, present, and future. Not just some of it. Not, 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 just, not only those sins, particular sins that I happen to confess. Because let me tell you, for every sin that you confess, there's multitudes of sins that you don't confess. See, this was one of the freeing things of the Protestant Reformation is, be, is because of that people believed, and this is one of our differences with the Roman Catholic Church, is they believe that it's through the confession of your sin that forgiveness comes to you. What drove Martin Luther mad? Was he confessed and confessed and confessed? And the more he had to he confess, he had more to confess. And the and more he confessed, the more he saw he had to confess. And so he was confessing, 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 confessing all the time and driving everyone around him crazy in regard to it because he had to confess all those sins to Roman Catholic priests so he could be absolved of them. But the more he confessed, the more he realized he had to confess. Let me tell you, confession is a big part of being a Christian, but it's not what saves us. What confession is for us basically is laying a hold again to the cross of Christ. I want you to know something. If your faith is truly is in Christ, he has set you free from the bondage of the law. You were a prisoner to the law, and now you are free of that. And the death that comes is a result of it. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's a very important verse. It puts everything in a nutshell. Or a lot of things in a nutshell, not necessarily everything, but a lot is, in a, is right there in that verse. The heart and soul of the gospel is right here in that one verse. not only that he condemned sin in the flesh he condemned your sin in your flesh for what reason in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us You ever think about that? Sometimes I think people think I talk about sin too much. And maybe they're right. 
Maybe I do talk about sin too much. But we need to talk about sin. Is sin still a part of your life? Is sin, sin unfortunately, still a significant part of your life? Are we growing in Christ? Let me just tell you something. If you're not growing in Christ at this point you're at right now, it's for a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons is this, is you're no longer looking at the law and then looking at yourself. I challenged you so many weeks ago now whether you knew the Ten Commandments. And I'd be willing to bet you anything. There are people in this room right now, if I ask you to tell me what the Ten Commandments are, you couldn't do it. I had someone recently, because I was encouraging people not only to know the Ten Commandments, but also to maybe memorize some things like the Beatitudes, that, that I was being legalistic by encouraging people to do that. And it's really easy to claim that you're not a violator of law when you don't even know what the law says. We are no longer bound by the letter of the law, but we are still bound by the spirit of it. That's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about the Holy Spirit. But every time that the Greek word for spirit appears in, in the Bible, it doesn't necessarily mean it's making a reference to the Holy Spirit because there's also a spirit that indwells us, right? A human spirit. Not only the Holy Spirit, but a human spirit. Sometimes law just means principle, a rule or a principle. And that's what is, Paul is talking about here, that the rule, the principle still abides. It's still there. So what he's saying here is, yeah, the law of God is good. And the law of God, before you became a believer, condemned you. And you've been set free from that condemnation through your faith in Christ. But don't think for a minute the law's got nothing to do with you at all anymore. Because it's the law that convicts us. It's the law that's mirror. When we look, at the, we look in, in, in the law and then we look at ourselves, we see how far short we fall of it. And through that conviction, we are broken once again at the very foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. If that will not keep us humble, I don't know anything that might. The world looks upon church today in a little different light than it did when most of us were growing up. There are a lot of people out there that believe that the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. People who say one thing and they do something entirely different. People encourage me to live my life one way, but I don't see them living their life that way. Very often they have a sound argument in making that. I 
One of the problems is this, is it's very easy for Christians to become self-righteous. To begin to believe that they are different than other people just because they are special of themselves. They begin to forget that they're still sinners. And because as a believer, there's, don't you think that, that, that in the scheme of things that when a sinner, that a, the Christian sins, that there's a sense in which it's worse than when an unbeliever commits the same thing? Because that unbeliever doesn't know definitely that it's wrong. You, on the other hand, do. You think that being a Christian puts you in a position of no accountability at all or less accountability. I'm going to remind you of something. There's a sense in which it puts you at a point of higher accountability than anybody else. Because God has blessed us in ways he hasn't blessed other people. He just has. We cannot, and we do it all the time, but we cannot continue to condone sin in our own life. We cannot have the attitude, Christ died for me, he did that for me, so what I do now doesn't make a whit of difference. We all have a witness. We have a testimony, and let me tell you something, your life, is the best witness, the best testimony you're going to get. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe and what you do. Don't tell me to do one thing and then do something entirely different yourself. You understand that in Christians, the law of God comes to life. Comes to life. I don't want anybody here fretting about, am I saved or am I not saved? One of the things I'm doing here is trying to remind all of us is how we're saved and what were we saved from and what were we saved for. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. How much time do we spend indulging in garbage that is ever before us Because of this culture that is around us. Now, I'm as guilty as anybody else. I watch a lot of movies I probably shouldn't watch. Sometimes I think we can, we can think we can indulge in all kinds of activities. It's not really going to affect us. It's okay. That's just not so. We need to run away from sin and we need to run to Christ all the time.
For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Seriously, you know, based upon the condition of the world or the church in the world today, what do you think most people would conclude in regard to the church? That all these church people that live in my neighborhood, all these church people that are in my family that witness to me every now and then, are they living a life that really is very distinctly different than mine is? Now, one of the Paul things Paul is arguing for here is this, is that when you truly are in Christ, then your life will be different. The things that other people do, you won't do. The things that other people say, you won't say. The things that other people think on, you won't think on them. Because that is not where your mind is. That's not really where your heart is. As we said before, he's already argued that where you're at, you're still a sinner. You're still going to commit sin. But the real issue comes down to this, is is your heart first and foremost for God, or is your heart first and foremost for sin? Which one really takes priority? Which one is, occupies the position of most prominence and importance in your life? Is God at the center and sends just a little thing on the periphery that, that raises its angry head every now and then? Or is sin at the very center of it and God's on the periphery of it? In other words, does God drive you or does sin drive you? Are you in Christ Jesus, or are you still very much in the flesh? Verse 9. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God indwells you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The Spirit is, you know, the third person of the Trinity, and in Reformed circles, we don't talk about the Spirit near enough. Very focal point in the New Testament. Not so much in the Old Testament. The New Testament, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. Paul describes you as being a temple of God in other places. A place where God dwells. A place where God lives. Inside of you. It would be crazy for someone to assume that I can truly believe in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwell me and my life not really be very different than the life, average life of an unbeliever. Unbeliever. 
We talked about the whole idea of carnal Christianity, and this is very pervasive in our country today. You hear it at almost every funeral you go to, whether the person was a believer or not. There's the idea that, uh, that you can be a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ in word, but not in deed. Or that you can be a follower of Jesus Christ in deed, but not in word. Coming to faith, my friends, in Christ Jesus is transformational. Always, there is real, substantial, obvious change that takes place. We are a new creation. We are different than we were before. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm struggling with these kinds of things, I go back to think about where I used to be compared to where I am now. And let me tell you, Keith is not where Keith thinks he ought to be. Keith is not where he wishes he would be at this point. You Maybe you're comfortable with where you are. I'm not. I'm Paul in chapter 7 of Romans. I struggle constantly and continually. But I can honestly look back and describe to you a time when I was far removed from God. When I didn't know Christ, am I the same person I was before? No, I'm different. Because God has made me different. Not because I've done it, but because he has done it. When the Spirit of God indwells people, it will be obvious. It will be, they will be different. They won't be like everybody else. Well, think about this. One of the things that really ticked God off in the Old Testament was this. Was his people, his chosen people, continued to worship idols. Those great Israelites he brought out of Egypt, guess what they brought with them? They brought all their idols with them. They were worshiping these idols even out in the wilderness. We all have idols yet. What are your idols? What are you, in essence, worshiping in the place of God? You know, I, I think the number one idol is for the vast majority of us is not every one of us. It's me, myself, and I. Me, myself, and I. Remember, guys and gals, you're different. You're not the same people you used to be. And God has very great expectations for you. He has very great plans for you, but he also has very great expectations for you. And most of us don't feel comfortable doing this, but one of the things he's called everyone in this room to do is, the, is this, to live for Christ where you're at right now. To be a light in the darkness, to be salt 
in the earth to be different. Not in a bad way, but in a way that really would perhaps draw some other people to question why you're so different than they are. In a good way. Do you love the unlevel, level, the dregs of the earth? Or do you love people that I meet a particular standard that you have? You pick and choose who you want to love. God did that. He chose to love you. But it's his right to do that. It's not our right to choose who we want to love. And the most loving thing we can do for everyone around us, let me say it before, the best thing you can do for yourself is to nurture your own relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know what? When you do that, your relationships with the people around you are going to change. That's not going to happen apart from Bible study, apart from prayer, apart from community with the saints. We need each other for a lot of reasons, and one of those reasons is this, is we need each other to help each other grow in Christ. So let me ask you something. Do you feel condemned? I hope you don't. That was not my intention at all. On the other hand, do you feel convicted? That, in fact, was my intention. For the purpose that drives us again, yet another time, to Jesus Christ, who is everything.